0: You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg Podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. Married women of 18th century England and the colonies couldn't vote, couldn't own property, sign contracts, or practice a profession. Under the law of coverture, their inheritance became their husbands. But unexpectedly, some of the curses of spinsterhood and the misfortune of widowhood gave women some freedoms that their married sisters didn't enjoy. Professor and author Karen Wolf is with us today to talk about some of the discoveries she made in researching her book, Not All Wives. Karen, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Harmony, it's a pleasure. Well, reading your book was such an eye-opener for me because I, I grew up knowing that women didn't, didn't have the right to vote. Um, and of course, everybody who's read any Jane Austen knows that women couldn't inherit property. But the inequity went so much deeper. It was, it was, a, a, it was a different culture for women. How, how can modern women even begin to imagine um, the difference that gender made in the 18th century in the colonies?
1: Well, I think that in some ways we can see across the world the difference that gender makes. I mean, we know how excited people have been that Saudi Arabia is allowing two women to go to the Olympics and participate as athletes, for example. You know, women in the West are astonished that women in very traditional societies are not allowed to drive, for example. We know that in traditional cultures, Gender is a hierarchical form of power, um, just as race is or class. So I think that the, the notion that gender is really powerful and can be powerful isn't confusing to people. I think what's astonishing is how powerful it was in our relatively recent past and how powerful it was in an era we think of as revolutionary and promoting independence. Women really had no voice. Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting is that so many vestiges of those laws of coverture, which, by the way, were really complicated thats that is that it is somewhat straightforward in that married women cannot own property and they can 't make contracts and things like this, but there are ways that people get around it, um, for example, we know that lots of women um, acted as professionals it 's simply they had to do so behind the cover literally of their husbands who were the official legal representatives and could take anything that they earned um, but anyway it's a com- you know it 's a complicated little um, legal arrangement there. And this is what we're
0: talking about when we use the term coverture. Can you tell us what that means in the 18th century context?
1: Uh, so coverture is a principle that it comes from the French, actually, and it means to be covered. Um, and its clearest articulation was by William Blackstone, the 18th century English legal theorist, who described how women would be covered by their husbands and how they would be married women, once married, uh, would recede, essentially, from public view and from any kind of public capacity. So they couldn't own property in their own name except under extraordinary circumstances. And there are a few women who manage those extraordinary circumstances. Once married, their real estate became their husband's, or at least his to manipulate um, for profit. Any personal property they owned became his outright. They couldn't sign a legal contract. They couldn't show up in court and testify um, in court. They had basically no legal capacity whatsoever. Um, And obviously this, this is an enormously complicated legal doctrine because it's impractical. So for example, in port cities, in the colonies, or in England too, you know, women whose husbands went off to sea, who were mariners, who were gone for extended periods of time, really? Could they not (laughs) operate or function at all? Of course not, there were ways that people kind of got around it, but the point is that was the letter of the law, um, and it was followed mostly. Um, So it was pretty incapacitating.
0: The the premise of your book is that the law almost can't imagine women who are not wives. It kind of leaves out these categories of women. The, the, the law looks at women and says, okay, these are individuals who will become married and have children. But it's kind of hard for them to figure out where women who never marry, who enjoy that, that lovely title of spinster, mm-hmm. or women who are widowed, where they fit in. But they actually end up being outside the law a little bit. They have some kind of extra freedom, some little extra maneuverability.
1: Well, what's interesting is that the letter of the law is quite clear that women who are not married are, they're straightforward. They simply can act as, as men do. In other words, it's married women who are a specific problem for the law. They're the ones who are problematic. Unmarried women are not problematic legally. They're problematic culturally, though. So, it, so there are ways in which, despite the fact that the law says that a woman who is not married can do whatever, any, whatever a man Can do basically. The law doesn't have to specify. It only specifies married women, in other words. So, unmarried women are not a kind of a target of legal regulation the way married women are. But culturally, there's such a presumption that women will marry and be married, and the hierarchy of gender is such that women generally are seen as dependent and powerless and not intellectual. So, culturally, they cause quite a problem. They look different, basically. And as we know, Sadly, historically, difference does attract negative attention.
0: This is such a complex issue because it's not only one of gender, but it's also one of class. You could have a a very um, well-off gentry woman who was single, and she might be just fine, happy to run her life. But if she was a very economically disadvantaged woman, she would have so many fewer options, even though she was single and not covered by her husband.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I found is that um, there are so many more single women in cities in the, in early modern Europe and in the colonies, um, in part because cities offer an opportunity, very meager though it was, but an opportunity for employment for women who are not married. They get really terrible jobs. There are some records in Philadelphia, for example, Um, of a woman who swept the steps at the courthouse for, you know, just a pittance. But that's a job she could have. And those kinds of employment opportunities, terrible though they were, were not available in more agricultural areas. So women tended to, um, unmarried women tended to cluster. Either they came to cities or they didn't remarry and allowed themselves to kind of remain single if they were in in cities. Um, But they definitely faced a terrible, terrible trial. It's very, very difficult.
0: And some of these women who became um, wards of the state by bearing children in their single state were a particular problem.
1: Yes. And, you know, of course, there's a, there's a great deal of concern about illegitimacy, even though illegitimacy rates are pretty, you know, they're pretty high. And, they, you know, <laughs> historically, illegitimacy is a problem for the state um, because of the children and because of who will care for the children, who will be responsible for the children. So these women come in for kind of cultural um, prohibitions, they come in for a lot of abuse, um, but they also, they can't get a lot of help caring for their children. There's no such thing as, you know, enforced child support, for example. No one's going around figuring out who is the father and making him pay, but there are some examples in court where um, people do go to court and say, he's the father, and, you know, the father is, is, has to pay a fine and sometimes is asked to pay some amount of support for the child, but it's, it's very minimal. It's nothing like we would recognize as ongoing ongoing child support. So having a child while single is tough business whether they're not married they never married or whether it's a widow who's lost the kind of the primary breadwinner in her family.
0: When did women start to protest this? When does this tide start to turn?
1: Well, I think we there there are so many examples of women protesting gender inequity throughout um, the, the modern West, um, beginning really, we, we can find examples in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. The title of my book, Not All Wives, actually comes from a protest that some petitioners wrote in England during the English Civil War in the mid 17th century saying we are not all wives, you must not, you must not treat us all as if we are this particular protected and subordinated class, you need to give us some access, some political access. So uh, women have, have long found ways of protesting what they see as these inequities, but when did those protests become successful, I think is what, <laughs> is what you're asking. And the first clearest um, articulations and maybe the most kind of broadly publicly recognized ones are in the mid-nineteenth century in 1848 with the Seneca Falls Convention Statement. Um, And Elizabeth Cady Stanton's 1848 Seneca Falls um, convention with Susan B. Anthony. In 1848, the women write um, a declaration of what's called a Declaration of Sentiments, which they cast very much like the Declaration of Independence as, you know, the Declaration of Independence starts out with a list of grievances against the king, against King George III, and the Declaration of Sentiments starts out with a Declaration of Grievances against men. Kind of in general, <laughs> talking about how they've deprived women um, of their property, and they they argue for married women's separate property. And the first married women's property acts, which allow women to have separate property, begin really in in the early eighteen fifties. Um, and and there's a kind of slow slow move from there. Some people would argue that those the dropping and changing those legal restrictions doesn't make an enormous difference until the middle of the twentieth century, though actually. Yeah changing economies, make restrictions on what married women can and can't do with their property. Um, tricky to calculate. So. It's interesting that you bring up the
0: comparison to the Declaration of Independence because I think about the Founding Fathers and who they intended to have um, the right to vote. It was, was white, property-owning
1: males. Well, what's so interesting is that many of the Founders were uh, very conversant with and aware of and quite tantalized by smart, um, accomplished women. Jefferson spent a great deal of time, as did Franklin, in some of the great salons um, of France where there were intellectual women who gathered other intellectuals around them. They were certainly conversant with women in the colonies who were also intellectual and very accomplished. Benjamin Franklin was um, a, a friend of and a kind of compatriot of a woman named Susanna Wright who lived out in Lancaster County, and I wrote about Susanna Wright quite a bit. She's a fascinating woman who's absolutely brilliant and Um, a close correspondent of the most, um, sort of the highest intellectuals in the colony. She does scientific experiments. She acts as a diplomat with the Indians. She has um, a kind of, she acts as a, a kind of legal jurist in some informal cases. She's quite extraordinary. But she does all of that in the period really before the revolution takes place. And part of what I argue is that the revolution is seen as unleashing progressive forces which will eventually allow for the, uh, the kind of full participation of women and African Americans and Native Americans and, and so on and so on. But part of what I argue is that the revolution actually increases the emphasis on white masculinity as the key to political participation. That's the key. It's not property. Actually, the shift is away from property as a key determinant of who gets to participate. And strangely, under the old regime of property is what gives you access, some women, despite a kind of lack of ability to vote, some women were able to have a voice because they had property, they had capacity. There's a wonderful study by a couple of friends of mine who show how women in 18th century Virginia used their property to empower propertyless men to go and sort of do their political bidding. Essentially, so there are ways in which women actually lost out when kind of poorer white men gained, in a sense, from the revolutionary movement. So it's not a kind of a steady march towards you know access and participation and and freedoms for women, just as it wasn't you know for any for any other group. So I think it's a more complicated story than that, somewhat less satisfying than than a kind of steady march.
0: Karen, thank you so much for being our guest today, and we hope our listeners will pick up your book. The author is Karen Wolf, and the book is Not All Wives. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Do you have a question or suggestion for the show? Leave a comment at podcast.history.org.